Hey, it's Liz Kelly. Here are a few things to check out in the Ringer universe before the end of the week. We've got an oral history on the movie Rounders 20 years later going up on Thursday. So read that and then check out the Rewatchables episode that Bill and Sean did on the movie earlier this month. And don't forget about our extensive football coverage. We have a new pod going up every day of the week on the Ringer NFL show and more football content on the Bill Simmons podcast, Dual Threat and Against All Odds. Subscribe to those and more on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Watch. On today's pod, my friend Zach Barron dropped by, and we talked a little bit about Kari Fukunaga taking over the James Bond franchise, which is obviously pretty shocking news coming after Danny Boyle's exit from from the long-running series. And we wanted to talk a little bit about what that means for Fukunaga, for Bond, and then also a little bit about Kari Fukunaga's new Netflix show, Maniac, which is coming out on Friday. After that... Uh, I had a really, really awesome band from Los Angeles called the Altons drop by, and they played a few songs for us. They were incredible live, like just an absolute delight. If you get a chance to see them, I know that they've got a record coming out and they've been, they're going to start touring a lot more soon. So you got to check out for them at the Altons on Twitter to find out where they're going to be playing around you. I can't recommend this band highly enough. I'll talk a little bit about them before the music starts a little bit later in the podcast, but let's get into my chat with Zach Barron. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me in the studio is the Robert Caro to Kerry Fukunaga's Lyndon B. Johnson. I think that's fair to say. It's Zach Barron. Very fair. Very fair. What's up, man? What's up, man? Uh, Zach and I are very, very close friends. (laughs) We're uh, our own support system on a golf course in Los Angeles. But Zach is also a chronicler of of modern celebrity and of of some of the great creative minds uh, that we have today. And one of them is Kerry Fukunaga. And you just wrote a piece a couple, I guess you wrote the piece a while ago, but it was published a couple weeks ago about Kerry yeah. Fukunaga. And I then did. today we wake up and it's announced that Kerry Fukunaga is taking over the Bond franchise. Yeah, I feel a way about that, actually. I was wondering, Kerry did not mention that when we spoke. Was there even any suggestion when you were hanging out with him where he's like, yeah, you know, I got a couple irons on the fire, but I guess Danny Boyle was still directing. I think Danny Boyle was still in, and maybe he was, like, plotting his palace coup. The thing about Kerry Fukunaga is he's had, like, seven projects yes. in development at any given time Yes, since before he made his first film. Like, he's very ambitious and just has, like— seven scripts going at all times. It feels good to blog about him, to attach him to things, <laughs> and to be like, you know who would be good for this is Kerry Fuganaga. Or, you know he also like- is like high drama. Like he'll go in on a project and he'll like develop a project and then he'll quit the project and he'll spend two years working on something. And, and then that's it, what he did with It, right? He did with It and he did with The Alienist too. Yeah. And then would you, but I thought one of the things that was really kind of convincing in the piece was his description or at least his his account of like, you know, people think that I'm like throwing all my toys out of the pram when I, I don't get my way or something. These were like rel- like varying degrees of amicable departures from these situations because of these X, Y, and Z reasons. Like I didn't think that he was like this enfant terrible, you know what I mean? Right. I think it I think the reality is somewhere in between. Okay. And I think Carrie would cop to that. Okay. Obviously in the piece he's a little defensive about um, because of it not working out, because the alienist not working out, because of some other studio projects not working out, because of Nick Pizzolatto taking a little shot at him in season two of True Detective, uh-huh. 
um, with that character yeah. that is a, a very pretentious director <laughs> that may or may not be a stand-in for Carrie. Um, I think he legitimately in some circles has a rep for being a little bit difficult mm-hmm. and being a guy who is going to do it his way uh, or he's not going to do it. And I think there's some truth in that. But as as you say, obviously, he'd be the first to be like, I we ran out of money on Beast of No Nation and we just reshot the third act. Right. Like I'm, I compromise on yeah. that. I compromise on True Detective in a million different ways. Um you know, this is a guy who, like, with the second film, made Jane Eyre because he just wanted to make a studio film. He's like, I'm not, like, a renegade here. I'm, like, trying to play ball. And I think that's true as well. Well, and now he is playing ball in the most, like, not, I wouldn't necessarily say corporate, but this is old school. Like, the there's no franchise that has as many... Uh, Hot committed cooks in the kitchen, if I can mix two two sayings, uh, then the Bond franchise, because you've got essentially this, it's the broccoli families, uh, they're like, they've, they've, they've shepherd this whole thing. And, you know, they've had a lot of success over the last couple of years with um, the reboot featuring Daniel Craig. But it's really interesting to think about the idea that they were like, hey, we're going to do something different. We're going to bring Danny Boyle and we're going to do something really subversive. That didn't work out for a bunch of rumored reasons stemming from either what they were going to do to the character and what he was going to maybe be grappling with as like a somebody who may have been like guilty of some crimes in the Me Too era. era. <laughs> also, he apparently, at least according to Jonathan Price, who sent like who just said something really randomly, the actor Jonathan Price was like they didn't want a socialist James Bond, and that that the politics of the character might have been a little bit different. Well, also, isn't there, speaking of cooks in the kitchen, wasn't there some rumors about Daniel Craig's opinion yeah. on Danny Boyle? And also on the who, who they were trying to cast as the uh, villain, and it was rumored to be that Danny Boyle wanted the guy from Cold War, whose name escapes me at the moment. But that that was also a sticking point, and that Daniel Craig gets approval over all the casting that goes on around him. So yeah. you've got all that stuff happening, and then into the mix, Danny Boyle exits— they throw out, assuming I assume they're throwing out John Hodge's script, which was like they had a Neil Purvis and Robert Wade script ready to go. They hired Dan- Danny Boyle, and Danny Boyle was like, I'll do it if John Hodge can just write a completely yeah, different he script. He sat in the room and pitched a completely different movie, yeah, and, and they now, bought it. Yeah, and now that's all gone. They hire Carrie, and you would think on the surface, the first thing you see is like, Carrie Fugnog is going to be on this job for six weeks, right? Yeah, and and I think that's a real possibility. No shots to carry, just because of what you're saying. Of the broccolis are super involved. Daniel Craig has shown in uh, the last week that he will absolutely get a director thrown off a project yeah. um, if they don't see eye to eye. He seems like a reluctant bond anyway, so he's like, I'm only going to do this one way if I'm going to do it. Yeah, um, and like you say, this is this is like old school. You know, what's the date on this? It's 2020. He's making a movie with Ryan Johnson first called Knives Out. He's making like a thriller. Right. And so it's like you got to keep all the balls in the air for the next year, year and a half, two years. Right. You got to keep everybody happy, all the cats herded um, to get to the finish line on this. Here's the weird thing, though. I kind of think this will work. I think so, too. And partially because I don't think Harry's lying when he's like, I actually am a team player. And he, one thing he is, is, and I, and, and I don't say this in a negative way, he's, he's very ambitious. Yeah. This is a guy who, like, uh, made his first film when he was still in film school um, and, like, took it to Sundance and was, like, 
like in his third year was like, guys, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm a star I'm already. Um, and he was a star already. And I think he has been trying to figure out a way into the major leagues like this. He also hasn't made a studio film since 2011. Yeah. Um, which is Jane Eyre, his second movie. Then he did True Detective and Peace and No Nation. It's a Netflix film. It hasn't actually, was never really in a theater. So he's, he's he might end up going nine years between theatrical releases. Theatrical yeah. releases, which is fascinating. And but this is a guy who like is like, I wanna be a great director. And that means like being in theaters and and playing to big audiences. And I, I think it actually makes a lot of sense. And not just sense in He's terms also of a cipher. what he wants. Yeah. Carrie is not like I, I don't think of Carrie Fukunaga movies and then always carry around a certain thematic coherence to them that goes from movie to movie. He's an exquisite composition. He is one of the great, like, frame artists. He obviously, based on what we know from The True Detective, like, is incredible at moving the camera. He's a he's a great stylist. I think he's very thoughtful, but I wouldn't say that these movies have a, like, uh, a through line where you're like, this is what Kerry Fukunaga makes movies about, and if you don't like it, then you shouldn't hire Kerry Fukunaga. No, the through line with him is, is, like, the camera in motion and character in relation to their surroundings. Yeah. You know, it's like Sonombre where he's taking the camera into the sort of hideout of these drug dealers and he's looking in every room and you just see people out of the corner of your eye or the camera's eye like doing stuff, you know, or True Detective where it's these cars like gliding past oil refineries. Yeah. And and it's it's all about atmosphere and character's relationship to their surroundings as taken in by a camera. I mean, his training is as a as a DP, and he's he's still just has this brilliant eye. But thematically, yeah, the, the things that get you in trouble with the broccolis, it seems, when you're trying to make mm-hmm. a James Bond film, or when you're like, what if James Bond was someone different than yeah. James Bond? And there's like a couple yeah. of successes with that. Like the the probably one of the best ones is the Sam Mendes Skyfall, where it's like, what if James Bond was being bad at yeah. Was bad at being James Bond. And what, what if, if James was Bond a, was like washed? And up? what if he was an orphan? What if we finally find out found out a little bit about what made him the way he is? Right. What if we basically like gave some interiority to this guy and some real regret, angst, um, self-doubt? Scar tissue. Yeah. yeah. And that that I was kind of shocked that they even allowed that to happen. Um, it's a very it's one of like the better James Bond films, but by the time Spectre rolls around. It's gotten much more convoluted, and they kind of have like I, I think that that's the problem with with where they're at with this with that reluctant bond in terms of Craig that we're talking about is because that way if if Craig's not like I want to do something that forever changes the trajectory of this character and we and we bring in this idea that uh, he's fallible, that he's guilty of certain crimes, that he's uh, an aging dinosaur in this bre- Brexit era. He probably doesn't want to do that. I mean, he had the opportunity to do that because that, by all accounts, is what Danny Boyle wanted to do. You hire Danny Boyle for subversion, for the most part. Right. It's also not, like, a great continuity strategy for these things. I mean, it's like you go to a Mission Impossible film and you want to see Tom Cruise pilot his own helicopter, yeah. you know? And and you're willing to do some meta stuff and you're willing to do some self-doubt stuff occasionally. But like Mission Impossible, James Bond is endlessly renewable because it's— Action set pieces in great locations and a certain kind of <laughs> bygone English colonial vibe. Yeah. And if I understand like guys like Boyle or Mendez for that matter, um, especially these Englishmen who who come to it and are like, Empire is dying and so is James Bond, but that is not 
how the Broccoli family is going to keep making James Bond films. You right. know, at some point, there's just like, can we get that tracking shot from True Detective in here? And we'll reinvent Bond by not by not having the camera cut when he's like fighting 17 dudes rather than reinventing Bond by being like, what if James Bond was kind of a bad dude? Yeah, and if anybody is wondering about that, I mean, you can just watch Kerry Fukunaga's commercial work and see him make Western Pennsylvania look like the French Riviera and know that he is going to look at whether they this thing is set in the Middle East or the Mediterranean or Eastern Europe or wherever they wind up traveling for this movie is going to look astonishing. Yeah, I mean, look at look at his... You know, that guy went to Louisiana and basically shot outside of New Orleans and was like, we're not doing the French Quarter. We're doing all this other stuff yeah. that you've never seen on yeah, camera. Yeah. You know, and then did the same thing with Beasts of No Nation where he was just in these crazy locations that no one had basically put on film in the way that he put them on film. Even Jane Eyre is like, you're like, wow, this English countryside. I really like, I, I see this English countryside. So that's a strength. That's like a, they want to go to, they want to go to a gang of places for a Bond movie. Kairi is like top five in terms of being like, you want to go to a place? I'll like. I'll sh- I'll show you that. I'm place. fired up for this. Do you think that the broccoli family watched Maniac before they hired him? It's a great question. <laughs> Have you seen Maniac? I've watched the first episode of Maniac, and it's. I I was gonna say no spoilers, but it is almost unspoilable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so an interesting thing happens in Maniac, uh, which is, is, is when is it on Netflix? Ma- like, it comes on tomorrow. It's a show starring Jonah Hill and Emma Stone, which I think is going to get a lot of people to click on it. And then I, I really, really would love to see the retention rate. And the fascinating thing is, so I think it's 10 episodes. The first three or four are like the first one in the sense of it's this sort of slightly alternate reality in New York that's like glum and weird and surreal and you can't quite tell what's going on. And then the, the plot of the thing is about these two people in a drug trial and they have uh, eventually when they start the drug trial, they have these visions. Mm-hmm. And so... This isn't really a spoiler. It's I think it's like sort of part of the pitch of the show. Yeah. And it's a remake of another show anyway. Um, episodes become visions that they have. And there's like him doing like cool like Inception style spy stuff, you know. Or Jonah Hill and Emma Stone are, you know, Long Island dirtbags. Right. And they're married to each other. Right. And I think this series really comes alive when he's like, basically making little movies. But I do wonder what, like, Barbara Broccoli is going to think when she just watches, like, glum Jonah Hill be ostracized from his family in, like, an Upper East Side townhouse in a slightly alternate New York. So this is the thing. It's like, was that the material? Is that what Carrie wanted to do with that specific group of material? And is he essentially, like... I do what's right for the material that I have, or is he going to get midway through and he's going to be like, you know what we got to do here now is you have to do underwater swimming. You have to scuba dive for 20 minutes. <laughs> Probably, but like, isn't that a better outcome than him getting halfway through and being like, you need to cry in this scene? <laughs> yes. Or Danny Boyle being like, I'm going to do five split screen on VHS and we're going to talk about socialism. <laughs> I'm into that. I don't know if I'm into that with Bond. I can't tell. I... Bond is so funny because it's not somebody, as I get older, I find that I feel less and less um, emotional ownership over these characters. Like, I don't really, like, when, 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 spoiler alert, when Luke dies at the end of Last Jedi, I'm not like, oh, no, now there goes part of my childhood. I was like, oh, I'm pr- probably ready for this to happen. Bond is not somebody that I am either overly committed to as, like, he needs to walk into an office and throw his fucking hat over there and then say something cute to Miss Moneypenny and then say this to Q and say this to M. 
I'm more like you guys can play around with this or whatever. But like, if I want like a real movie about something, I there are other places to go. So I'm kind of fine with Bond being Bond. You know, I agree, and I think that Carrie's a great hire for that because I think you know he doesn't. It's not that he doesn't do interiority. It's not that he doesn't do you know dialogue and interpersonal stuff. But as even Maniac kind of shows, he really soars when he's he's got a little bit more to play with yeah. than two people in a room talking. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm I'm pretty excited too. And I feel like it will work out. And I feel like this is a nice place for him to have landed. I think that there's a lot of, I think, cynicism about uh young directors getting sort of slurped into to yeah, big, absolutely. To big projects. But I think he's not as, as we see he, Ryan Coogler oversees Space Jam too. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think he's not as young as some. Yeah, um, I think he's got a little bit more work under his belt, and I also think his talents are kind of pop talents, and he's just been working in stuff that's not quite pop. And I, I'm actually super excited to see him take on something of the scale and size. Of, I wonder of a what's Bond movie. what's like Robert Purvis and Neil Wade like. What their email emails are like, where they're just like, so we're all we got fired. J- J- Danny Boyle's here now. Now that now we're back. We're back. Our script is back. And then they're like, wait, now they're going to want to rewrite my whole script again. Well, okay. is a lovely emailer. I yeah. can attest to that. That's so. good. All right. Uh, Zach Barron, thank you so much for coming by. He'll be by again. And we're going to have our performance from the Altons coming up next. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by DC Universe. Do you like DC? Love DC? Or are you what some people might call obsessed with DC? Then you need to A probably moved out of Gotham City, and B, you need DC Universe. It's the only place where you can watch the all-new live-action Titans, which premieres this fall, not to mention Young Justice, Outsiders, Doom Patrol, Swamp Thing, Stargirl, and Harley Quinn, which will be coming your way in 2019. New episodes come out every week, which means you'll always have something to look forward to. DC Universe has features that you just have to see for yourself, like a world-class comic reader that even works on your big-screen TV, a thoughtfully curated, regularly refreshed library of 2,500 modern and classic titles, and a members-only store full of exclusive merch and discussion forums filled with fans and talent discussing all things DC. This isn't another streaming service. Nobody needs that. This is what you might call the ultimate DC membership, and it works on your favorite iOS and Android devices as well as Roku, Apple TV, and Google Chromecast. Join for just $7.99 a month, or better yet, grab a $74.99 annual membership and save 20%. Join DC Universe at dcuniverse.com today. Today's episode of The Watch is sponsored by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. Explore the vast number of things you can do with your secure smart home, such as... Doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. Or even worry-free getaway service, which is my favorite service. It lets you arm your system, lock up, and set lighting schedules before you go on vacation. All controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Don't worry about installing and configuring your system. ADT will DIFY do it for you. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. So we're now about to get into this live performance and a quick interview that I did with this Los Angeles band called the Altons. And I guess my relationship to this band is largely one of those 
happy accidents that really can only come out of the internet era. Although it's not altogether different from thumbing through the stacks in a record store back in the 90s or the early 2000s and just seeing a record cover that you kind of like and 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 coughing up a couple bucks for it and taking it home. This is basically the same thing, but I found them through Spotify. Uh, I was I was listening to a bunch of different bands based off of uh, one live performance that I saw by a guy named Rudy DeAnda at a bar randomly, really randomly. And I was like, oh, this guy's pretty good. And I started reading about this LA scene of bands that were sort of drawing from everything from like 60s soul to psychedelia and playing out of Long Beach and East LA and different spots around Los Angeles. And it seemed like there was this loose community of bands of which the Altons were a part. And I just sort of read a little bit about them and started listening to them and just loved them so much. And they're locals. So it was not that hard to uh, for them to come on by and play a few songs. Uh, if I had to describe their sound, I mean, that's the nice thing about 2018. You don't really have to describe anything. You can just hear it. Uh, but they are they remind me a little bit of a kind of rock version of 60s stack soul with a little bit of a Latin flair to it. They've been compared before to the Alabama Shakes. I love uh, Adriana Flores' voice. I love, love, love uh, Brian Ponce's guitar style, which really goes all over the place from these kinds of like heroic guitar solos to really classic Steve Cropper, Booker T and the MGs, like rhythm guitar style. So it's just a really delightful, delightful band. Um, they You need more bands like this in your life. And I hope you guys check out The Altons. You can find their music on streaming services and uh, follow them at The Altons, A-L-T-O-N-S, to find out when they might be playing near you. I highly recommend seeing them live. I chatted with them a little bit about being a young band in Los Angeles, and we get to hear a couple of songs, which are great. Here are the Altons.
called Darling Girl.
This one's called Last Call.
It's my pleasure to be joined by the Altons. We just heard you guys play three songs. Uh, you guys mind introducing yourselves? I'm Brian. I play guitar and I sing. I'm Adriana and I sing. I'm Gabriel and I play bass. And I was just wondering, like, um, I, I want to hear the sort of basics about like how you met, where you started, and stuff like that. But I was wondering if you could describe the first time that you were playing together, and you were like, "Oh, this is what we sound like." Um, we we used to have this uh, little studio in in the city of Vernon, and we invited Adriana over one time, and uh, yeah, we were just playing our songs. She came in, and we we did uh, we do this cover of "Summertime," mm -hmm. the old song, and we had we had her sing on it, and it was just it blew us all away. It, just, knew then it, was, yeah. it worked. We were like, oh, we got something going here. Were you looking to join a band at the time? Um, I was in a band, but I was always just, you jam with other people when you're like in other groups and it just kind of fit. It worked. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about it. So you grew like, where were you guys? How did you guys, how did you guys kind of like connect? That was, you met Adriana through this, this fortuitous cover of Summertime, but what, what was going on like right before then? Um, we're all part of this uh, collective musicians around the East LA and Southeast LA area. So we've all kind of just played in bands with each other and like seen or heard of each other, seen each other around. And it just so happened that uh, I've, well, I've been playing with Gabriel for a while because we went to high school together. Yeah. Okay. And then so, we had another project before this one. Okay. Yeah. But then we, yeah, we, we heard of Adriana. We saw her play one time. We, we met her at a show and we invited her over. So it's just kind of like a community of musicians that all. You like, get on bills with different bands, and you guys show up at the bar, and you check each other out. You and open then, for them, they open exactly. for you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you, what? Like, what are some of the other bands in that scene? Uh, there's uh, La Chamba, band called Twin Seas, mm -hmm. uh, the Steady Forty Fives, Weapons of Mass Creation. There's just Tropa a bunch Magica, of groups. Yeah. yeah. And is it largely like a lot of it, like some of the '60s soul? meets like it definitely like taps into that I yeah. feel like it's a weird fusion of like a lot of things we grew up listening to yeah. and then we sprinkle in like inspirations that we've heard from our parents like through boleros and through rock and like the different things we listen to that's really so, cool yeah it's, it's cool it's a cool mix because it's like right now it's sort of funny I mean partially because I'm a little washed and like I'm 40 but like I think <laughs> that because of the way it, ironically because we have access to so much music and so much information about yeah. music Sometimes I feel like I, I read or think about just like the same old bands over and over and over yeah, again. Yeah. And I was always kind of wondering, one of the things I was hoping to talk to you about was sort of like the state of like a local scene yeah. when everybody can listen to everything all the time anyway, you know? Like, do you find that it's a pretty, like a vibrant experience being in a band right now? Like it's really supportive and and I I, I guess you see what I'm saying? Like, like it's in like, a local sense? Yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely more organic if you're going to those shows and you're like going specifically for a certain band and like you're really going out of your way as opposed to just being at home in your room yeah. listening, which no, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But if you're going to the scenes and supporting the band, it does become this organic thing. It's really supportive. So yeah, the definitely. bands we just like um, mentioned, so like La like Chamba and Tropa Magica, we know all those guys. Yeah. And we all hang out and like we shoot each other's names to like different people like to try to get them gigs. So it's, there's still that old nostalgic feeling of like support. A community. But, a community. Yeah. You know, yeah. But then also that could easily like, the lines are blurred with the, with online, with sure. being yeah. on the web, with searching for bands that aren't even near us. You yeah, know what I, I think mean? The, thing, the thing is too that we've all been playing like backyard shows like in high school. Like all the, all the musicians that are around, we've been doing it for a while. So we all know each other from like the house party scenes and from... Backyard shows. Yeah, and well, we like shouldn't that. have been partying in high school. We were. That's okay. <laughs> and we were like in backyard I don't think shows. We were the first people like, to ever party yeah, in high school. Nurturing that. Yeah. Sorry, mom. No, because <laughs> you know the way I actually heard about you guys was I went and saw um, 
I randomly went to a Rudy Deonda show. Oh, cool, uh, okay. cool. And, and I actually saw him in Ojai, of all places. Mm-hmm. And I was just looking him up on Spotify, and you guys came up and recommended, basically, like, very recommended cool. if you like. Yeah, we know Rudy, too. It's Do you cool. find that that kind of random stuff happens now because of the way people can find stuff online? Yeah. yeah it definitely the, does, the, yeah. The technology uh, definitely changed the game for, yeah. like, musicians mm-hmm. and, like, how to network. So rather than before, we're just, here's the flyers, you know, yeah. like, by word of mouth. It's kind of like an electronic word of mouth. Now it's yeah. like, it's, yeah. The yeah. recommendation You just send bar links on YouTube yeah. and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, so what are you guys, you guys are working on your first full length now, yeah. right? Yes. So you've been working on it for a while? Yeah, yeah. Yes. it's been a while. Fair. Tell me Quite a little a bit about it. Um, it's just a collection of songs that we've been, that we've had. Uh, just gigging. We've been gigging for the past year or two. Just nonstop. And we finally got together and went to the studio and recorded them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so just a collection of songs that we've had, we've been playing, we're proud of, we decided to finally put them out. Do you guys mostly play, like, are you trying to replicate the live experience when you're playing in the studio? Is there a lot of studio? We, def- we definitely we, added uh, yeah. different, like, uh, things, I guess, for a different feel. Yeah, but def- We'll definitely have the same elements of a live show that we th- do. That's cool. Yeah, it's definitely very, uh, like, live sounding. We did record it in, in like, a, like, one of those old style studios where it was, like they have We're like all the, playing at the same time. Yeah. And they're cool. And with like dividers yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Everybody, I mean, like, I feel like you guys have such an incredible live sound. It's oh, a thank problem. You. Thank you. Like capturing yeah. that is like a job in itself. Is like it? trying to get that. Yeah. Shout out to Joel Jerome. Yeah. Joel Jerome. Yeah. 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 They're the ones who like helped us and like got it done. Mm-hmm. The yeah. tedious like cycle of doing it over and again. And so like, you, trying to get it right. you put the record out and we're recording this in August, but the record will probably be out in September at some point. And then you guys going to try and tour it. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. We were talking just a little bit before the podcast started about like the average music fan probably thinks, oh, this band's just going to put out a record and just like go out on tour. But it's like a massive, no, there's massive so much, undertaking. so much work that goes it's into a massive it. Yeah. What's the what's the farthest point you guys have been so far? Texas, you Texas, said? Texas, yeah. Austin, Texas. We went to Austin for yeah. South by. And you just did you gig down there and gig back, or did you just like a, drive a little straight? bit? Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. we caught a gig in Arizona, and and then we just drove overnight. Yeah, yeah we, we, we caught a gig in Arizona <laughs> the night before. We had a gig in uh, Texas, so we we played the Austin. gig in Arizona at, yeah. nine, at nine at night. Drove all day, got to we changed in the car, got to the show, just jumped out and had a yeah. Set we up had to play jumped at, out, jumped think, on stage. I think we had to play at four thirty. We got there like at four twenty five, so we jumped off the car. Oh, that's rock stars yeah. right there. <laughs> <laughs> just like right right at the end. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Fun. <laughs> uh, what's the album called? It's called In the Meantime. Okay. And people will be able to find it on streaming music platforms yeah. and yeah. everything like that. Me and Andy obviously like sh- uh, shoot it out when it comes out. Thank you. Yeah, really thanks. appreciate you guys coming by. Thank you for having us. Yeah, this is, awesome. this is, this is yeah. a cool experience. This is the Altons. Thanks, guys. Today's episode of The Watch was sponsored by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection, including services such as doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or kids, or turndown service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights, and thermostat. It's all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you.